Good morning, Crossway. You can go be seated for just a minute. I'll ask you to stand again in a minute, but uh, to introduce myself, my name is Adam Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at Crossway. And before we get into anything, I want to set the record straight. There will not be a bonfire at our house on the 21st of July. We'll have a fire pit with s'mores and lots of games, so please come, guys. But no bonfire. Um, but so grateful to be with you and to worship in song with you this morning. And now to worship as we um, read and study God's word. And just as I promised, I'm going to ask you to stand in respect for God's word. I'll read the passage we're going to look at today, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get into it. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 13 to 14, Paul says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in you we can find power and peace in this life and that you prom promise to come for us again where we will be with you in eternity if we trust in your work of love on our behalf. We pray for our hearts this morning that will be open to your word that the word of God will um, pierce our hearts uh, to the point that it changes our lives to be more like you and that we can be more effective in displaying your good news of salvation to those in the world around us and the way we live and love. We pray that you would do this through the power of your spirit. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, many of you know my wife, Christy, and I are blessed with three daughters, and our oldest daughter, Aubrey, started her first job this summer. And it's a big step for her, and honestly, it feels like an even bigger step for us as her parents, um, because we've had our entire lives, or her entire life, 15 years, to train her up in the way she should go, and we're really proud of her. But just like any good parent, right before sending her off on her first day to her new job, we gave her some final exhortations, which I'm sure she loved. Um, so, Aubrey, make sure you're polite. Be friendly. Make sure you stay off your phone. And uh, we get a very similar sense from Paul in these two verses that we're going to look at today. The verses are positioned at the very end of Paul's first letter that he wrote to the church that he founded in Corinth. And so Paul, after writing an entire letter... In the end of that letter, in his closing remarks, where he's sharing details of his upcoming travels, as if, it's as if Paul doesn't want to end without one final exhortation. Oh, and remember, Corinth, don't forget. And although Paul often refers to the churches he writes to as his children, here in these two brief verses, Paul takes more the tone of a military captain giving final orders to his armies before sending the men to battle. And this tone fits Paul um, and because he frequently compares the Christian life to a battle. You, you may remember he told near the end of his life his young protege Timothy, I have fought the good fight. And Paul, like any good military leader, wants to instill in us courage and confidence to fight until the end, until final victory is realized. Whether when he calls us home 
or when he returns in victory. Well, before we get into the verses and unpack them, let's consider the cultural context and the audience of the letter. The city of Corinth was an ancient Greek city that was currently ruled by the Romans. And the city sat in between two port cities, which bridged a major trade route for the Roman Empire. And this trade route um, provided to the city both prosperity and significant diversity. Diversity of traditions, thoughts, cultures, and religions. And the city of Corinth, as such, was broadly known also for its sexual immorality. Even the name of the city was used to describe unsavory lifestyles. To Corinthianize in everyday Greek or the vernacular meant to go to the devil. Even in this letter, Paul mentions a couple of phrases that were common in that day that were used to describe immoral practices. One of them, referenced in 1 Corinthians, says, the stomach is for food, and the food is for stomach. And it was meant to provide license for the fulfillment of sexual activities and appetites. Another common phrase mentioned in the prior chapter, in chapter 15, this may sound familiar to you, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And it was a mantra that excused their unsavory lifestyle. Well, this cultural context is very relevant for our consideration today. Because did you note any similarities? The city of Corinth was in between two port cities, and our city here of Wilmington, commonly referred to as the port city. And honestly, with access to the internet and worldwide media, really anywhere in the world can be considered a port city, if you will. And don't we hear similar mantras the Corinthians culture and ours today? You only live once, you do you. If it feels good, do it. Hey, I'm living out my truth. And our secularized culture rejects any hint of objective truth. More than acceptance and tolerance, celebration of ungodly lifestyles is the expectation And anything less than celebration is considered bigotry. There's no consideration of God. Truth has no center. Anything goes. Well, just like the church today in many ways, the church in Corinth was very immature in the way that engaged the culture of the day. And Paul, in this letter, addresses issues not only related to immoral practices— but also issues related to misplaced loyalties. You may have read, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am of Christ, or issues related to doctrinal confusion. In these final verses, in our fight of faith, Paul is not calling us to strict militant adherence to some moral code like the Stoics of ancient Greece and Rome. He's not after acceptance of the world and its culture, nor separation from it. But instead, Paul is calling us to fight with faith, hope, and love. So, two verses, so simply two points today. The first, Paul's three imperatives, or final charges. 
And secondly, the kingdom battle cry, the drumbeat of the gospel, do everything in love. So first, Paul's three final imperatives, his final orders. I'm going to read these in three different ways for effect and for understanding. Be watchful. Stand firm. Be courageous. Be alert. Hold your ground. Be strengthened. Don't fall asleep. Don't give up. Have no fear. And the first of these, be on your guard, can be taken a couple of ways. Be on your guard from enemies or for your coming king. So be on your guard. Don't fall asleep from enemies, enemies that are within and enemies without. The enemies without, namely the devil and his influence on culture. I'm going to read three passages. They'll be on the screen. If you can get to them fast enough, you can read them from your Bibles. But in Ephesians 6, 10 to 12, Paul teaches us that we fight in an unseen war. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Another, 1 Peter 5, verses 8 to 9, admonishes us to be sober-minded, to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in faith. And lastly, in his second letter to the church in Corinth, this is the second one that Paul wrote to this same church in 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul expresses fear. But I am afraid that as the serpent, or Satan, deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Note that these verses aren't calling us to fear the devil, but also not to ignore him. We're to be mindful and watchful for his devices and schemes, to fight against his lies and deception that tempt us to question the truth of God's word. Just like the devil told Eve, did God really say Another outside influence is the devil's influence on our culture and its influence on us. I'm going to read this uh, verse from Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul writes this to the church in Colossae. It's another church that had lots of issues. And he asked them to watch out for ideas and teachings that go against sound doctrine. In Colossians 2, verse 8, see to it, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. We must be mindful of mindsets and beliefs that are counter to the gospel and God's word. So enemies without and enemies within, namely our sinful hearts, 
I'm going to read this from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, and it gives a grave warning. Take it as such as I read this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Side note, did you take note of Paul's expectation that we're not to walk this life alone, that we're to fight together with other believers? I'll take this moment to encourage those of you that call Crossway your home. If you're not regularly connected to believers and community, there's a wall on the way out in the lobby that has many of our life groups by geographical location, and find one and reach out and try it. And if you don't like that one, you can go to a different one, like Church Hop. Um, in August, we're going to be having more uh, life groups launch, so that's a great time right after the summer to join. But really encourage you to fight faith um, with other believers. You can't do it alone. Before we leave this point about fighting enemies, both within and without, I'll point to two insightful quotes from a book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. It's a narrative, narrative story that depicts the workings of the devil against the weaknesses of Christians and the Christian faith. In each of these two quotes, an older, more senior demon is teaching his younger nephew, Wormwood, love that name, how to tempt Christians away from their faith. And in this first quote, it's an encouragement to not fall asleep to the devil's ploy. And the, the devil's ploy in this quote is to cause us to forget that we're even in a battle. Listen as I read. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. The second quote I'm going to read is a great reminder that we're to renew our minds daily by reading and meditating on the Word of God. It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. So we need to regularly put God's Word into our minds. Another side note, um, I've encouraged the men in Forge when I've had an opportunity to teach there. There's a great app um, designed by John Piper's ministry, Desiring God. It's called Fighter Verses. And Fighter Verses is a great tool to help you memorize Scripture and get it into your mind so that you can fight enemies within and without. So there's enemies within and without we need to be guarded against. But another sense is we need to be watchful for our coming king. The author J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a lot of books, including The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. If you don't know of Tolkien, you may have heard of his good friend C.S. Lewis, who we just quoted. And uh, it's interesting, they were good friends, and C.S. Lewis was actually influential in bringing Tolkien to faith in Christ. Well, I'll be honest with you, I didn't read The Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, mostly because each of the books is hundreds of pages long which is well over my limit. And they don't have any pictures. But I did watch the movies. 
And one of my favorite scenes from the movies is when Gandalf, the good wizard, is about to leave the group in order to go find additional military support for the upcoming Battle of Helm's Deep. But before Gandalf leaves, he tells King Aragorn, and I so wish I could say this in a cool British accent, I won't even try it. But Gandalf tells Aragorn, look to my coming on the first light of the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. And later, near the end of the battle, when they're about to give up hope, Aragorn remembers Gandalf's words, look to my coming. And those words of promise return give them courage and confidence to ride out in one final charge against the enemy. And as they're riding out, they look to the east, and on the hilltop, there's Gandalf with another army, and together they defeat the enemy. Well, we too are in a battle, right? But as Christians, we're, look, we're told to look to the heavens for the return of our victorious king. And what's neat about our story is that our king has already won the war. He's already defeated the enemy. Friends, whether we live another day or another 50 years, this life is fleeting relative to eternity. We must not allow the delights of this temporal life to distract us from the promise of eternity together with Christ. The noise of the world is screaming, live for today. Enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. But instead, we should live with hope, with confident expectation that our victorious king will return for us. Earlier, we read from Ephesians 6 about the full armor of God. And there, in that passage, is referenced the helmet of salvation. That's part of our armor. It's a visual representation that our salvation is sure. And it serves as a reminder for us to hold firm to our faith, to the assurance of our eternal life. As we close this point, I'm going to read one more passage from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. And as I read it, I want you to listen for similarities to Paul's charge to stay alert in the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Be on your guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Sort of be on guard from enemies within and without and alert and watchful for the return of our king. Secondly, Paul challenges us to stand firm in the faith. So stand firm in faith may mean subjectively, like faith as in belief in something. Faith or assurance in the promises of God. 
But Paul may also mean for us to stand firm in, to persist in the faith, as in the word of God, the objective word of God, doctrine and sound theology. To not allow our minds to be taken captive by worldly values and perspectives. In the midst of all the confusion in the world around us, we look to the heavens for the return of our king while we stand firm on the truth of God's word. Paul tells his young protege Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to keep you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we look for assurance and stability in anything other than God's word, we will find ourselves disheartened, disillusioned, and confused, which will tempt us to retreat or surrender rather than persist in our fight of faith. So, on guard to enemies, alert for our coming king, firm in the faith. And these things will enable us to act like men, which sounds funny, but I'll explain that in a minute. But in other words, be courageous or be strengthened. Well, in this passage, in this letter, Paul is clearly addressing the entire church as a whole, not just the men. So, when he says, act like men— Paul is not erasing gender characters and categories like we see in our culture today. He's urging the church to embrace qualities that are stereotypically masculine. Bravery, battle readiness, steadfastness. I think it's important to point out that all of us, men and women, are called to be brave and strong. As well, we are all called, both women and men, to be kind and tender-hearted. So in charging us to act like men, Paul is likely meaning to call the church to Christian maturity in the way we live in the world, to not be immature in our Christian walk, not be weak but courageous against the challenges and struggles of this life. The opposite of courage is fear and hopelessness. And many times we feel that in our Christian walk, right? But even in the midst of the most significant and challenging circumstances of this life, we can find hope and courage both in God's word and in his promised return. So be courageous and in the same sense, be strong. Be strong in this passage is in the passive tense to be strengthened or be made strong. 
It's a good reminder for us that we're not meant to fight in our own strength because we can't do it. We're meant to fight in God's power. Remember Ephesians 6, it said, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I love this passage from the prophet Isaiah. It's in chapter 40, verses 28 to 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord, by the way, the Lord in all caps in the Old Testament is the Lord Yahweh, which is the promise-keeping God. He keeps his covenant with his people. And it's usually coupled with Lord of hosts, Lord of armies. That's who it's talking about here. Have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So when we come to the end of ourselves and stop trying to live life in our own strength, which we can't anyway, but it's so tiring, it's then that God promises to strengthen us. It's like Paul said in his second letter to the Corinthian church. When I am weak, then I am strong. So that's the first point. We've considered Paul's three final charges to be alert from enemies within and without, to be watchful for Christ's return, stand firm in our faith and be courageous and strengthened. And then secondly, our battle cry and the drumbeat of the gospel, if you will. Do everything in love. Now, imagine a military commander after giving final orders to his troops Instead of yelling, charge, or kill them all, says, now go love your enemies really well. This idea of love is antithetical to the world. And like many aspects of God's kingdom, things are upside down and backwards. This idea of love is different from the world. Instead of prideful judgment and hatred, and deceit, and malice, and jealousy, we are called to be kind, tender-hearted, generous, loving towards others. Yes, even to our enemies. Paul here is calling us to live out our faith in the way we fight. And sometimes as Christians, armed with truth, use it as a weapon in judgment of the world, so that we can build ourselves up above the world in pride, instead of seeing the world through the lens of love. What is love? The world would have us believe, we know this, that love is acceptance and celebration of all ideas and practices. But Paul actually defines love for us a few chapters back in 1 Corinthians 13. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, and as I do, and have you listen for the contrast 
to the world idea of love and kingdom love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Are you convicted yet? <laughs> when I, I underlined irritable, because that, that's the one that will get me all the time, ask Christy and the girls. <laughs> we'll come back to that sense of conviction in a minute. But that was the what of love. But now why love? Why are we called to do everything in love? Well, because actions motivated by love reflect like a mirror to the world the gospel, the good news of God's salvation. Because remember, Christians, we were enemies of God, fighting against him and his kingdom. We sought to tear his kingdom down so that we could build up ours. But instead of seeing us just as enemies, God defeated sin and death through love. When Christ was mocked and spit upon and beaten and had a crown of thorns crushed into his skull, and when he hung dying on a Roman cross for us, he could have called his armies. He could have called tens of thousands of angels. He could have ended it with one word. But he loved us to the end. And in some of his final words as he hung on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As Christians, we don't own the corner on God's grace. Paul wants us to model the gospel in the way we engage the world. And Paul's final charge for us is to display God's love in the way we live in it. Let everything be done in love. Now back to that sense of conviction. You know, when we read Paul's description of love in 1 Corinthians 13, likely our response is to be disheartened. When I think back on this last week and even yesterday, and in some ways this morning, I know I failed to love in every one of those ways. But when we fail to love, when we have fear rather than courage, when we falter in our faith, when we slumber rather than watch, we must turn to the foundation of our faith, the gospel, recognizing that we are weak and defeated soldiers without Christ. But in the cross, we can look to Christ who's fulfilled all of our shortcomings. So when we're tempted to despair, when we fall and stumble, look to Jesus. Because when we do, 
he promises to shower us in his love every time we bow before him as king. Now, for some of you, this idea of, may, of love may be new to you. But I want you to know the Bible teaches that Christ was the only person to have ever loved perfectly. And when we don't love perfectly, when we love ourselves more than God and love ourselves more than people, that is called sin. And sin is falling short of perfection, which God calls us to. And sin comes with a punishment. But in his ultimate act of love, Christ died for the sins of us, his enemies. And he took on himself the punishment that we deserved. And what's really neat is that now he freely offers us forgiveness and peace. If only we trust in his work of love on our behalf. In the words of C.S. Lewis, Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Perhaps this idea of love is not new to you, but you have yet to lay down your arms. Maybe you grew up in church and you're still living life in your own strength. You're trying to make this Christian walk work by just trying hard. And charge is the same to you, to surrender to God and stop living life in your own strength and depending on your works of righteousness. Look to Christ and his work of love on your behalf. So we've discussed the two points. Paul's three final charges. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous and strengthened. And our battle cry of love. Just as Paul closes his famous chapter in love, of love in 1 Corinthians 13, at the end of chapter, chapter 13, he says, So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So these two closing verses teach us the same. That we're to fight with faith, hope, and love. Faith in God's word, hope, and assurance in his promises and coming, and acts of love which display the gospel. When we moved to this new building, I was immediately struck by the beauty of the stained glass windows that line the worship space here. And I don't know if you've ever looked at them, but the window right before your way to CW Kids here, it beautifully depicts the three words, faith, hope, and charity or love. And as I close with several questions of application, I hope that in the coming weeks, as you have opportunity to pass that window, that you'll be reminded of these truths. So, some questions for us to consider. Where is our hope? Do we live more for today and tomorrow than for eternity in mind? Next, how much do we value truth? Do we pursue truth and doctrine for stability and courage? 
Or do we depend on other things for that? And is the time we devote each week to the reading and meditating on God's Word a proportionate reflection of how much we value God's truth? And lastly, how can we show love? What practical ways is God calling us to demonstrate the love of the gospel to the world this week? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we are weak and defeated soldiers in this walk of faith. And so often, we try to walk this, to fight this battle in our own strength rather than entrusting yours. We live this life distracted by the delights of this world rather than yearning for your second coming and the richness that we will enjoy in eternity together and with you. We fail to love so often but in all of this, we are so grateful for you that through the cross and your work of love on it, we, can't, we don't have to depend on our faithfulness in the fight. But you uphold us and give us strength. That's what we ask for this coming week. That you would give us strength to fight in faith. And that we would have opportunity and take those opportunities to display the love of the gospel in the way we live in the world. I pray that you would help us, enable us by your spirit to do all that we do in love. In your name we pray.